So you remember where we got to uh, at the end of last week? That Paul had set out, uh, having made this great statement that you're not saved by your own effort, but you're saved by faith, and you live by faith. He'd, he talked about how everybody has an understanding that they are wrong with God. That even if they're not Jews, they have an intuitive understanding of that. And even when they, they harden their hearts about that intuitive understanding, they also have the evidence of creation. And in the light of all that, God says... There is a standard that no one can meet, and that standard is Christ. It's perfect holiness. And rather than confront us with how bad we are, God, in in the middle of that um, line of logic and all the rest of it, he introduces this, uh, this truth that it is by the goodness of God that we're led to repentance. We are not led to repentance by knowing how bad we are because we already know how bad we are. We're led to repentance because he's a good God who loves us and he cares for us and he's there for us and he wants to rescue us. And from that, we we start to move on and and Paul started to talk about the, the issue is what's wrong in our hearts. And that's where we finished last week. Do you remember that? The the issue is what's wrong with our hearts. What we do consistently comes out of our hearts. Um, Because the problem that that needs solving for every every person on planet Earth who's ever lived is the condition of our hearts. The condition of our hearts has been wrong since Adam and Eve fell. And we can think, well, you know, well, let, let me get into it. Let's, let's go to James chapter 1. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 3, but we'll go to James chapter 1. And I'm going to look at, at verse 14 and 15. Um, these became very familiar verses in the early days of faith life because we, we did a teaching series and, and the, the guy who was doing the teaching series said this at the beginning of every episode. So, Hold your horses, take all your concepts of what that looks like out. It looks like me now. Okay, not the other guy who's like 10 times better looking and all the rest of it. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Or the word there is desire, enticed by his own desires. That when desire or lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, If you read that carefully, it shows us something that goes contrary to most of the things we talk about and we practice in Christianity. And most of the things that we talk about and practice in religion. And before I tell you just quite what that is, because uh, I'm going to ask you to, to shift your thinking in a big way this morning and move your preconceptions and what you've heard for a long time. But before that, I want to tell you a little parable. And I'm going to run this parable um, through a lot of weeks. So I'm just setting it up today. This isn't the conclusion of the story, but I'm setting it up. And I want you to to think about somebody, and they, uh, 
going along quite happily in life, and suddenly they start to feel ill. They feel that um, they start to feel nauseous and short of breath, and they're getting bad stomach pains. And so they go along to the doctors, and the doctor examines them. He asks them lots of questions about what their symptoms are. And they describe all the, all the pain and the short of breath and, you know, they, they can't quite get up and down stairs like they used to and they've just been sick all the time. And the doctor said, I think you've got a stomach problem. So what I want you to do is, uh, from the symptoms you've described, what I want you to do is I want you to go and take this medicine. I'm going to prescribe three different types of medicine. I want you to take it regularly. And in order to get your appetite back, you, I want you to go and do some exercise because you're a little bit overweight and I want to go and do some exercise and, and really up that. So the person goes away and follows carefully all that the doctor said to them. And they take the medicine, the, the nausea subsides, um, and as they do the exercise, they, they feel a bit fitter, their appetite returns, and they're feeling a whole lot better. And that lasts for a couple of months. But at the end of that couple of months, they start going backwards again. And this time, the pain's a lot worse. The uh, shortness of breath is a lot worse. Um, the, all the symptoms, the nausea's come back, and they're feeling worse than they first were in the first place. So they go back to the doctor. The doctor does the same things again, asks them lots more questions, uh, goes into detail about what the pain feels like, what the, what the sickness feels like, looks for causes, you know, like, does it, is it when you eat wheat? Is it when you uh, eat dairy? What is it? And then he prescribes some new medicine and says, what you need to do is you need to take this medicine on top of all the other stuff I gave you, and you need to really up your exercise now because I feel that you're just not fit enough to be dealing with the, the, the stresses of your life. So the patient, he goes back and um, does exactly what the doctor told him. Takes the medicine, takes the new medicines, takes it regularly, um, does the exercise, and again, feels so much better. And feels better for two or three months. But then the pain starts coming back, and, and the shortness of breath is much worse than it was. And, and they're just feeling really terrible. They can't stop being sick. And they go back to the doctor, and this time they, they run some more tests because it's puzzling the doctor by this point in time. And they run some more tests. He sends them, the, the patient off to a specialist, and the specialist looks at all the tests. He runs some tests of his own, talks to the patient, and he goes, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing we can do for you. You've got a cancer and it started next to your heart, it's damaged your heart and it's now right through your stomach and there's nothing we can do for you. There's no treatment. That's what James is talking about. What he's saying is this, and I want you to understand this because this is like where the mind shift is this morning. Sin is not your problem. Sin isn't the problem of mankind. Sin is the symptom of the problem. 
your heart is the problem. Okay, I'll say that again because I've got some nods but not lots of nods. Sin is not the problem. Almost sin actions are not the problem. The problem is the heart that causes the symptoms. And if we're like that doctor and we keep on treating the symptoms without getting to the root cause of the problem, eventually we will die. And unfortunately, that's what the church and the, the, has done for a couple of thousand years. It's treated sin actions. It's treated the symptoms and not shown people how to get to the root of what the problem really is. Do you get this? Okay. Because that's what James is saying. Can you go back to that verse from James? He's saying each one is tempted and carried away and enticed by his what? Desires. Where does the problem start? It starts at desires. It starts at what's inside you. It starts at your heart level. And when desire conceives, when the, when the enemy gets a hook in with his temptations or, or, or you, stuff that happens gets a hook in with the temptation, it produces sin. It produces the action that goes with the temptation. The temptation and the desires are, are, are not themselves the end product. And when we treat the sin actions, we're treating the symptoms and the patient gets worse, not better, over the long term. That's why we produce miserable Christians who are locked in bondage, can't get out of all the things that has been messing their lives up for years because we keep on treating the symptoms and telling them they need to sort themselves out. And here's a few more rules. Here's a few more ideas about how you might sort yourself out. And the fact is, you cannot sort yourself out because you have a problem that your heart is wrong. Now, I'm talking to unbelievers, okay? That, that it's the, the heart problem that we're talking about here has a solution. But the solution isn't the law. It isn't rules. It isn't effort. It isn't trying harder, praying more, reading your Bible more coming to church more, putting chairs out more, and all the rest of the things you might try to solve your problem. It's not locking yourself in a room in the dark and hoping that you'll never look at a video screen again because that's where your issues are. It's not like going to the other side of the street every time you come near a pub. It's not that. That's not going to solve your problem. It's going to make your problem worse over the long term because you need a radical solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem isn't to treat the symptoms. The solution to the problem is radical surgery that you need to cut out what the issue is. You get in this. So when he goes to the surgeon, the only solution left, or this patient is going to die, is radical surgery. Are you with me? Because that, that parable, that illustration is going to go through over several weeks. So that raises a question, doesn't it? Well, it should do if you're still awake. And, it, and it's, over the course of the next few weeks, I'm going to answer two big questions. The first one is, well, if all this is true, what was the point of the law? What's the point of rules? What's the point of all them regulations in, the, in, in Leviticus and all that sort of stuff? What's the point of all these things that we do? And the second question, which I'll get onto in a few weeks, is, so... If I don't have to do anything, why do I bother being holy? Why should why should can I just go off and sin? 
Well, I'm not going to get onto that one this morning, but I am this morning going to talk about why we, what's the law for? Because if you're saying that the law is a good thing, which is what Paul says, what was it for? What is it, what is it good for? Okay, so I thought this morning I would call it law, what is it good for? <laughs> and the answer isn't absolutely nothing. It is good for something, but it's not good to cure the condition. You get, do you understand that? So, let's go to Romans chapter 3. Let's go back where, we st- where I, I got you to start. Uh, verse 12. Paul is talking here and he's saying everybody's guilty and, and the Jews, he's, he's specifically talking to the Jews at this point, who had been saying, well, we're okay because we're better than other races because we've got the law. This is what he says to them. All have turned aside. Together, they've all become useless. There is no one who does good. Nobody reaches the standard, whether you've got the law or you haven't got the law. And then on to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be shut and all the world become accountable to God. Now, This is really important, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before. You were never under the law. It's not talking about believers and unbelievers living in England, unless they're Jews. Because the law was given to the Jews, nobody else. Now, what we did is we imported it all just the same way as Paul had the problem with all his new converts, in that they imported the law into, tried to import the law and the Jewish way of doing things into the new Christians in the Gentile world. But they were never under the law. Only the Jews were under the law, and Paul says that made you doubly guilty. Because not only did you have what the Gentiles had, which is that intuitive knowledge of God and the witness of creation, but you had the law. And it still didn't do you any good. Because none of you can meet its standard. So when it says it talks to the, the, what the law has to say, it talks to those under the law, there's two groups of people there. Firstly, there's Jews. They were always under the law. And then there's Christians who decided voluntarily to put themselves under the law because they had a sin problem that they wanted to treat. And they thought, those Jews guys, they've got it nailed, we'll have, the, we'll have that law, and then we can treat our sin problem. Okay? That's why Paul gets so upset when anybody tries to import this into non-Jewish re- believers. Are you with me? Okay. You see, the purpose of the law is different to what most people think. Because most people think that having rules and regulations and all these things we've got to do actually makes us better people. They think if we can keep all these rules, then and we try harder and we do more and we pray more and we read our Bibles more and we do all these things more, we'll actually end up being more like Christ. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to pray. It's good to pray. I'm not saying it's bad to read your Bible. In fact, I recommend it. 
I'd recommend you all do it more than you do. But the point's this. That doesn't get you right with God. And the law was never, ever designed to make you any better. It was designed to stop you getting worse. It never had a cure. The cure to sin is not more law. It's not more effort. It's not better performance. It's not making yourself holy. Because the law and self-effort and trying harder treats the symptoms of the problem, the sin actions, but it doesn't treat the root of the problem, which is the desires in a person's heart. So sin, that the law is good because it treats the sin actions. But it never ever has the power to solve the problem. Are you with me? That is major. That is absolutely massive. If you can get your head around that, it will set you free. And you will realize that, that so many things that we've done in our lives over the years, trying to make ourselves better, were futile. Because we were treating the symptoms without treating the desires. So when we, put in th when we try and do things to stop the symptoms, what happens is the, the desires are still there. So we feel like there's this war inside ourselves and we can't actually break free. That's why people, good, great, faithful, hearted Christians, are stuck in sin in all their life, hidden. They're stuck in pornography, they're stuck in alcoholism, they're stuck in all sorts of things because we are teaching them to treat the symptoms without changing the, problem, the root of the problem. Are you with me? That is huge. So what is the law for? It tells you here. It's to shut your mouth. Just every, say, to, say to yourself first, say this first to yourself. I've had my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. Turn to the person next to you and say, tell me to shut my mouth. That's all the law's meant to do. The law is meant to get you to the point, or it was meant to get the Jews to the point, never the Gentiles, meant to get to the Jews to the point where they said, we can't do this and we are without excuse. So stood before a holy God, I better keep my mouth shut because I have nothing to say good about me. I've got nothing that's going to help me. The law was designed to... Um, cause people to realize that they cannot get anywhere near God's standard. To shut their mouths because they could no longer rely on their own effort, their own energy, their own self-help, their own rule-keeping, their own ways of doing things, their own religious practices. And then what happened? The church imported all of that into Christianity. Now, we still need a solution for the desires, but the solution for the problem isn't the law. It never was, because if the law was the solution to the problem, Jesus wouldn't have had to come in the first place. 
If the loaves could solve the problem, there would have been no need for Jesus. Are you with me? Okay. You know, um, and this may be a little painful illustration for Cheryl, but for many years, on my Christmas list, there was a particular thing, because I wrote to Santa every year and I gave it to Cheryl faithfully to post. <laughs> on my Christmas list, there was this, this, this thing, a, an electric screwdriver. <laughs> I had wanted an electric screwdriver since we got married. And, and I was fascinated. I'd, I'd go into B&Q and look at them and look at all the little bits you could put in and all the amazing things it did, and how you could fit curtains round corners and upside down because it had little bent bits. And I was excited, and I'd put it on my list every Christmas, and I'd come down Christmas morning excited. Santa had ate his mince pie, Rudolph had ate his carrot, Santa had drunk the port, and, and I'd look under the tree, and no electric screwdriver. No electric screwdriver. I got pot puri dish one year, but no electric screwdriver. <laughs> not manly getting a pot too dishes but Cheryl liked it no electric screwdriver and one year many years on I got an electric screwdriver and it had bits lots of little bits cross bits straight bits sharp bits it was exciting and I got to practice now I discovered something about my electric screwdriver that you have to have the right bit for the right job. Because if you've got it too small, it just spins round in the hole and does nothing. And then if you've got it too big, and at this point, I'll just talk this side of the room. If you've got it too big, what happens is it goes in and then it shears the screw and the screw wrecks the cupboard you're building. But, <laughs> but it's hidden next to the wall and we don't know that, okay? <laughs> That's how it works. But it messes things up. It's just too, too big. The point is you've got to have the right tool for the right job. The law is a good tool, but we're applying it to the wrong job. You got it. Rachel, come tell me your story. Because I got, I got this, well, I got, I got one, uh, I think it was Facebook message, and then I got an even more exciting Facebook message the following week from John. And so Rachel's going to try and summarize, just because what we're seeing is that this message that we're preaching right now is setting people free and changing lives. Yeah. So anyway. Okay, so uh, last Friday, I'll have to like squeeze it down a bit because it was like four or five hours. Um, I went to my mum and dad's for Tupperware um, and I stayed for coffee and um, we were just talking about dreams and stuff like that. My dad comes from like a spiritual side, so um, he does, well, he used to do Tai Chi and stuff like that. And my mum has like witchcraft in her family line, so I've come out from that. So basically, we just started talking about um, dreams and stuff like that. And um, I just started sharing about God and how he's changed my life. And my dad sees like auras of people and like, you know, that sort of stuff. So. I said, oh, uh, you know, I feel that I've changed. And he said, you have. I can see it. You've physically changed. And I was just, a lot of the stuff that I was saying, I don't know what I was saying. It was just the Holy Spirit just coming out of me. You know, when you just kind of like, oh, what just happened, you know? And it was like that. But, um, yeah, we were, we were just talking about God and, and healings that he's done in our lives, miracles that he's done in our lives. 
and um, just trying to think. Oh yeah, and I mentioned about um, how we did on Sunday. We were talking about Romans one eighteen, and I was saying about how um, the ungodliness of people even know that God is real, uh, but they suppress it, and they both agreed. And I was just like, look, like. <laughs> It was just like, yeah, it was a, a confirmation for me because it was like God's word is true. Even though you don't believe, you know in your heart that you're suppressing that, you know, and they both agreed to that. And, um, yeah, so we were there for about four and a half, five hours just talking about God and the miracles in, that have happened in our lives and how they've been brought into it, like bringing food for us and God's used them without them even knowing, which is really great. Um, I'm just trying to think well. You want to talk oh, about John? Oh, yeah. Um, and I was saying about how John um, had problems with his back and his neck. And I was just, you know, praising God that I was like, well, even John's been healed. You know, his neck's absolutely fine, you know, and stuff like that. And my mum was like, oh, I might even come along to church and see what it's like, which was an amazing thing. You know, I was just absolutely buzzing when I got home and I told John about it. And then um, do you want to come and share yours? <laughs> So I didn't know, but um, after I said to mum and, and dad about his neck, he started getting problems in his neck, but he didn't tell me about it until like so the day after. I don't know if you've seen it, it's on Facebook and things, but uh, about last June, July, John, had, he, he'd had serious long-term problems with his neck and his yeah. back. That's him falling off a bridge when I was in the army. Yeah, so <laughs> an accident when he was in the army. And all medical verifiable and mm. treatment for years, long-term painkillers. And he got healed uh, that morning in our, our meeting and, yep. and not had painkillers since. Yeah. So it was on Monday. Can I calm down? I know, mate. Calm down. <laughs> I, I can talk loud. <laughs> so it was on Monday. Um, Monday morning. Rachel came We're back recording. and told me. Oh, all right, then. Recorded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, then. So Rachel came back and told me. And which is fine, it was brilliant, excellent. And then Monday morning, uh, Rachel dropped the kids off and I'd gone to work. And as I put my helmet, wa helmet on, because I ride a motorbike, my, I had heard a loud crack in my neck, a really loud crack. And my entire body, body was kind of in absolute pain. It was, it was just kind of absolute agony. I rode to work in tears because it is that painful. Did a day's worth of work and come back, kind of had to put the helmet on, dreading it. Coming back, still really upset, kind of in tears because of the pain. Um, I spent most of that evening just laid out on the floor, kind of some of the profanities that came out of my mouth wasn't, isn't very kind of repeatable for a place like this. Um, and I spent the, the whole of the evening in pain, kind of went to bed in pain, woke up, still just in huge amounts of pain, could hardly, hardly move. I turned around and said to Rachel, you know what this is all about, don't you? And Rachel looked at me as in, I haven't got a clue what you're, what you're going on about. And I was like, my neck, you know why my neck is hurting? She was like that, I haven't got a clue. I turned and said, it's because you've had the audacity, audacity to go into the devil's place, into his household, and proclaim my healing in his presence. And with that, I turned around, carried on making my sandwiches. Rachel just put a hand on the back and says, you know. Actually, I said, I'm not having that. You, yeah, you said, I'm not having that. Put her hand on the back of my neck. And then she, I just carried on making uh, sandwiches. She prayed. She went off to the gym. I then kind of made the sandwiches, got back on, got on the bike, helmet on, and halfway down the road, it was like that. Oh. 
there's no pain. Well, praise the Lord. And they just <laughs> carried on. The point is this, that the gospel contains the power to change things. It carries its own power. But to keep that manifesting in our life, we, co we have to continue to stand in grace. Not, oh, I wonder what's gone wrong. It's Jesus' grace is sufficient. This is the enemy and Jesus' grace is sufficient. Do you get it? Okay. So, let's have a look at this idea that the law treats the symptoms, because then we can see what the law is actually for, as opposed to what we've tried to use it for. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, so scoot over. Uh, Galatians and Romans cover a lot of, of similar themes. Um, and so sometimes it's helpful to look at the other one to see what, throw some, some light on the original one, because the... They address the same points, but sometimes they add additional bits in and understanding. So we go to Rome, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, and it's talking about what the law is for. Um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. Actually, I'll, I'll go back to verse 11. No one is justified by the law before God is... Ever, actually, I'll, I'll go back. You don't need to. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, so the passage we, we were looking at just, just a little back, a bit back, says this. By the works of the law, no flesh is justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law is never ever to make you right before God. It's so you understand, it, it, for an unbeliever, it's so they understand their sin. That that they can't hit the target. And so when we get to Galatians chapter 3, we, we find out why the law doesn't work in actually making you any better. And so here we go. No one is justified by the law. Oh, sorry, am I right? Yeah. That no one is justified before the law, before God is evident. For the righteous man lives by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them lives by them. In other words, if you put yourself under the law, if you decide that's how you're going to go about your, your, your walk with God, you are going to have to live up to it because you chose that route. And you're going to have to carry the weight of that and all it's going to tell you is you're a failure and you can't do it. Because if you put yourself under it, you've got to keep all of it. And you can't. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was crucified. In order, so why did Christ sort of take all, and fulfill all the law and take all its consequences? He did it this, this reason. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, in order that we could be grafted into the covenant that he had with Abraham and the Jews. And that covenant with Abraham was originally a covenant of grace. Yeah. And he told Abraham that he was going to have nations come from him 
who would be blessed to be a blessing to the world and they would display his glory to the world. And, and what this is saying is your access to that promise that was given to Abraham and it's equally yours because it's a grace promise doesn't come through the law. It comes by faith in Christ because he bought your access to it. Are you with me? Okay. So... That also tells us why the law can never make us right with God. Why, why keeping the rules, why doing more, trying harder, self-help can never make you right with God. You cannot be holy on your own. You see, some people think, and this is a little pet one of mine, some people, well, I hear it all over the place. Revival's going to come on a highway of holiness. If only we were more holy, revival would come to this land. We cannot be more holy. Holiness is a product of revival because we realize that Christ has provided everything we need. It's not the way we bring revival. And so you've got people and they're praying hours and hours in little darkened rooms and, and trying to get sin out of their life just so we can have a revival. And it's the wrong way of doing it because we stand in grace, not under law. And the reason law can't work is here it says because the law has nothing to do with faith and the only way you can be justified is by faith so if it's not of faith it can't do anything to put us right with God or earn us anything or make God do anything because it has nothing to do with the system under which God operates it can't make you better it can't put you right with God. Never could, never intended to do that, and it isn't starting now to do that. So why have we got it? Let's go on to verse 19 of Galatians 3. Because Paul says, so why have we got the law? That's a good question. I just asked it. Good man. Well done, Paul. <laughs> Same question. It was added because of transgression, because of sin actions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. In other words, it, it was given to Moses through supernatural uh, impartation, and he writes it down and he gives it. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the seed of Abraham to whom the promise has been made? Jesus. It's not seeds, Paul says it this, it's not seeds plural, it's the seed, as in Jesus. It comes from the line of Abraham. So that's saying that the law was given because of sin, because of all the actions of sin on planet Earth, until Jesus came. Because until Jesus came, there wasn't a cure for the desire issue, the heart issue. And so something had to be done until Jesus came to constrain sin. So the law was given until Jesus came to constrain sin. It has no application after Jesus comes. You got it? Because it was given to constrain sin until the permanent solution came. Romans 10.4 says this, He put an end to the law for righteousness. That's Christ. Put an end to the law for righteousness. 
second reason that we find that we've got the law is what we've already said. It shuts your mouth. It proves that everybody is guilty before God. It removes all your excuses. And then Galatians also gives us a third reason, same chapter, but a few verses on, chapter, uh, verses 24. Therefore, the law became our tutor, some versions have schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under that schoolmaster. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. How can I explain this simply? Because I'm going to explain it in detail next week. But, uh, not a couple of weeks' time because we've got a conference next week. But how can I explain this? Basically, the law was given to show us that we needed Christ. Everybody is saved by Christ. The people who lived before Christ are saved through faith by looking forward to his sacrifice that was prophesied. The people this side of the cross are saved by faith looking back to the cross. We sit, both groups of people are saved by the cross, not by the law. They're saved by faith in what Christ has done. So, now that Christ has come, we don't need that tutor. What we have is we have a miracle has happened. We have been baptised into Christ and we clothe ourselves with Christ. Now, I'm going to explain that the next session, but basically, something miraculous, supernatural has happened that changes your heart, that changes your desires. The permanent solution to the problem has come. The law was the temporary solution until the permanent one came. The law treated the symptoms because it couldn't cure the problem. Now the problem can be cured, and that will result in a change in the symptoms. Getting it? Okay. So what I'm saying is this. You have to apply the right treatment to get set free. The right treatment is the gift of grace that you receive by faith. Grace, that is the victory of Christ at the cross and his provision for us, forgiveness of sin, healing, wholeness, deliverance, setting free from bondage, everything we need is the right tool. It's the right fitting for my electric screwdriver. It's the right tool. Because it's able to change not just the outside and clean the outside up, but it's able to change the inside so the outside gets permanently changed too. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Nearly finished. Verse 21. Now, apart from the law, so nothing to do with the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, been witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets said this was going to happen. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no difference. This is for everybody. Jew, Gentile, big, tall, short, fat, happy, sad, bold, lots of hair. Anybody. Even people who eat cheesecake, this is for. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody could get near the standard, so we needed a bigger solution. That's why it's for everybody. Everybody failed. So it's unfair if it's not for everybody. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How do you address the heart issue for the permanent change as opposed to treating the symptoms? You address the heart issue by putting yourself in the hands of the surgeon. Something radical is needed to get rid of that old heart and give you something new in return. That is the gift of grace. Now, this passage, and why sometimes we miss it, because we've got all that junk of religion headed up. The minute we read righteousness, we think, I've got to try and be more holy. I've got to try and be more holy. I've got to be more righteous. I've got to make myself more righteous. If only we were more righteous, this, we'd all be more effective. This church would explode, and, and it would be amazing and fantastic. The reason churches don't explode is because, and why we're not seeing revival, is because this gospel has got buried. The reason we don't see life change is because that's the only place there's the power to change lives. Whether you're happy, clappy, traditional, whatever, if you just treat the symptoms, you can't solve the problem. And you might look happy and cover it over, but the problem's still there because you don't know how to treat it. And treating it is by standing in the grace that we've been given. Now, this is the part I want to finish with. This, this gift we've been given... This passage calls it this, the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. Who believes? Put your hand up if you believe. Doing a survey. Anybody need saving? <laughs> Matt Gray still awake? Good. <laughs> this is how it works. We have no righteousness of our own. You know, one of the things that happened when I started putting verses up about the gospel without putting references on, the second response I got, our righteousness is like filthy rags. How can you say that? I can say that because that's Israel talking about itself in the Old Testament, comparing itself to the holiness of God and being unable to do anything about it. We live this side of the cross. We have the righteousness of God because Christ died for us. We are given righteousness as a gift. We can't earn it. My righteousness isn't felt like filthy rags because my righteousness, the only righteousness I've got at all is Christ. My righteousness is perfect. It's glorious. It's beautiful because it's Christ. I haven't got anything apart from him. I'm dead. We've got to get this. Everything we have, in Christ we live and move and have our being. It's Christ in us. Yeah. I, I have no righteousness because I'm dead. I died the minute I became a Christian. And he gave me a new life with his righteousness. And he declared me righteous. He declared me uh, put right with him by faith, not by anything I could do. 
And I refuse to be put back in a place where people will say, oh, your righteousness is like filthy rags. No, it's not. It's not my righteousness. I was done with that. 17th of March, 1975, 10.30 p.m. at night, my righteousness ended. And it was like filthy rags, but it's gone. And the reason we don't walk free is because we don't see ourselves like that. We don't know that's who we are. We don't know that's who Christ has made us to be. And we can't live it because what you see, what you look at, is what you empower in your life. And as long as you think you can't do it, you're dirty, you're filthy, you're failure, you're just inadequate as a Christian, you'll never be anything. Because it's not true about you. It's a lie about you. Are you with me? Good, because I'm done. Let's stand. <laughs>